Behold our God seated on the throne. Where's, where's a couple places, some, somewhere in Scripture that I may be going? A couple places we see the Lord seated on the throne. Isaiah 6. Okay, you nailed it. There's more than one place, but you nailed it on the head. Isaiah chapter 6. This is exciting for me to, to sing with you all and just to hear. And we're, we're you're kind of segueing into the sermon. It's, it's awesome when the Lord does that or when there's two messages and they go hand in hand. The Lord coordinates things without us doing it, right? So again, from San Antonio, um, my family was not able to come, but my wife is uh, dropping the nursery. There's other people that are able to be involved in that. And so, and God willing, if I, the Lord permits me to come back and you all would have me back, then mm, she should be able to come here more often <laughs> with me. So if you would turn to Isaiah chapter 6, that's where we'll be at today. Isaiah chapter 6. I don't know how to... No, it's kind of... Before there, there was a different pulpit, and now there's no pulpit. <laughs> it's okay. We'll, we, got, we got what we need, everything we need right here. Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll be looking at the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. And I've entitled the message today, Truly Encountering the Lord. Truly Encountering the Lord. Our God sitting on a throne. And it says there, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Father God, Lord, we can look into your word, Lord, and behold something of you. Lord, I I pray and I ask, Lord, that we would expect great things because we're asking a great God to come and, and, and shed some grace upon us, Lord, that we would be able to have some further light, some further insight, but not to stop at the head knowledge, Lord, that it would move to the heart and then move to the feet, Lord. We want to live out the truths that you teach us, Lord. Help us. Help me to communicate your truth. Help us all to heed your truth. And be with us, Lord, 
In the name of your Son, amen. Well, I know we're in Austin, decently close to San Antonio. I know not everyone's from here, but are there any NBA basketball fans and any Spurs fans this afternoon? I was going to say this morning, this afternoon. Spurs fans, any, anybody follow them a little bit? Well, I'll, if, you, if not, I'll kind of catch you up to speed. And in the 90s, where I grew up, um, the Spurs had their, their um, stars, Duncan, Robinson. Before that, um, there was Sean Elliott. Anybody heard the name Sean Elliott? Yes? Sean Elliott? Yes. Well, Sean Elliott... We, hear, we have here in Isaiah chapter 6 an encounter with the Lord. I want to talk to you about an encounter that I had. Okay, like I say, I was a, a Spurs fanatic. Okay, I was obsessed with the Spurs. I was a kid, even, even middle school, you know, running up and down the block with a Spurs flag, especially during the playoffs, yelling out, Go Spurs, go! Just, get, just getting excited for the cause of the San Antonio Spurs. When about 12, 13 years old in middle school, I had an encounter with Sean Elliott. Not just any encounter, but Sean Elliott, my favorite basketball player at the time, came to my house. So I was in the presence of my favorite basketball player in my own house. You can imagine that thought right there at that moment. There couldn't have been any, anything more glorious more exciting than that moment right there with Sean Elliott in my house. But of course, we know what happens, right? The excitement, the high, all of the thrill that I experienced, that I felt, it quickly vanished away. It faded away, right? Maybe, again, it doesn't sound like maybe there's a lot of basketball fans here, but you can imagine the greatest president or, or king in history or, or whatever else. What would happen? The result would be the same, right? First Peter chapter 1, verse 24. Just listen. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. It fades. So having an encounter with Sean Elliott, the president, or any creature in all creation will fade away and amount to nothing at the end of the day. We all need an encounter here this afternoon. All of us need an encounter in this life that that we have here. We need an encounter, but it's not with a great basketball player. It's not with a great king or president or anything else in all creation. We need to have an encounter, not with any mere king, but with the king of kings. We need to have an encounter with the Lord. And so I want us to consider this afternoon Isaiah's encounter with the Lord. And from Isaiah's encounter, I want us to be able to draw out and learn from four results that is inevitable for every single person who encounters this same Lord. Four results. Again, Entitled the message, Truly Encountering the Lord. And and that's important, the truly encountering the Lord. Because there are many who run around saying that they know God, right? They say that they've experienced a conversation 
or some sort of experience with God, that they've talked to God, that they heard from God, that they've seen dreams and visions from God, that they have their own personal, unique relationship with God. They've claimed to encounter the Lord in some way, shape, or form, right? Yet many of these people, they don't know anything about God as He's revealed in Scripture. They, they, they're completely clueless as to who God is. And not only that, because we all differ in various uh, knowledge and understanding and ignorance, especially when we're new Christians. But it's not only that, that they're completely ignorant, but also that they've never had any form of transformation since they've supposedly encountered this Lord. But what does the scripture say? We know what the scripture says, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Who can say it? If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creation, a new creature. He is not the same, right? So we understand what Scripture says. We quote it. We have it memorized. So this is the reality. If we've truly encountered the Lord sitting on a throne, you are not left the same. And like a preacher Paul Washer says, he says, if I were to tell you that an 18-wheeler hit me earlier today and I'm here preaching in front of you later on, you would either say that I'm crazy or that I'm lying. Because there's no way that an 18-wheeler going 60 miles per hour from the highway there would hit me and I would be left virtually unchanged. It's not possible. You're a liar or you're crazy. Every single person who encounters this God of the Bible will be transformed. So I have four main points for the message this afternoon. First, the man who encounters the Lord, and I say man, the man or woman, or child, who encounters the Lord is struck with his holiness. Second, the man who encounters the Lord recognizes his own sinfulness. Third, the man who encounters the Lord experiences forgiveness. And four, the man who encounters the Lord is eager to be a witness. So first, struck with his holiness. Second, recognizes your own sinfulness. Third, experience forgiveness. And fourth, eager to be a witness. In other words, having a burden for others to encounter this same Lord. So first, by way of introduction, look at verse 1. We see there, that King Uzziah died. Look at the beginning of verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay. The fact that we see that King Uzziah died is not a coincidence. It's not, uh, he's not putting it here randomly. Now, I used to think, you know, I, I don't remember specifically thinking intensely about this and, and the reason for this being here, but I think I used to think that he just said it to give us a timeline as to when this occurred, right? When this vision or this experience of Isaiah occurred, it occurred after King Uzziah's death. But I think it's much more significant than just telling us the time frame, okay? I don't think that that's the main or the only reason why this is mentioned. Think about this. King Uzziah was a powerful, powerful king in Judah, right? In fact, during this time of his reign, Judah was at its peak of its power. It hadn't experienced power like during the time of King Uzziah. Walls were reconstructed, towers were added. Uzziah led Judah to victory over the surrounding 
countries. But we see here, after 52 years of him reigning as king, something inevitable happened. King Uzziah died. He died. Now what happens? Well, Judah is in panic, fearful, uncertain of what's going to happen because especially during this time, they were dependent on their king. They looked to their king for basically everything. So right away, this is what we have here. We have a very interesting irony here. We have an earthly king who died, King Uzziah, who died. Yet, despite that, we still see the king of kings who is seated on his throne, even when the most powerful earthly king is dethroned. The king of kings is still on his throne. He's still reigning there, despite anything that happens here. Nothing has changed with his status. No earthly king, no earthly affair can tamper with the Lord who is high and sitting on the throne. Have you all seen a bumper sticker? I know I've seen it a couple of times that says, regardless of who is president, Jesus is king. This is true. Like, regardless of who is king, regardless of who is sitting in the White House right now, regardless if you voted for him or not, regardless of the kings rising or falling, this king is there on his throne, seated high and lifted up. King Uzziah's death, despite the impact that it had on Israel, it had no effect and posed no threat to him who is seated on the throne. People say, you likely heard it, where was God on September 11th, 2001? Or where was God during those horrible shootings? Or just a couple of days ago, there was a stabbing right in front of my house. Where was God? Where was God during the earthquakes? Where was God during the tsunami? Where was God accusing him? I can assure you, I can assure all of us here, my wife who saw the lady that was stabbed, I can assure anyone and everyone who was affected by this earthly system and the things that go on here, I can assure everyone, where was God? He was and is and will always be seated on that throne, despite what happens here on earth. Isaiah, he saw the Lord seated on a throne, and it says there, high and lifted up. This is not like when man seeks to elevate themselves and exalt themselves. No? When, when man does this, it's utter foolishness, it's pride, it's utter wickedness. But this isn't the case with the Lord. It doesn't say that he's seeking with all his force and energy to try to one day get up on that throne. No, it says he is high and lifted up. That's his state of his being. That is where he is. That is where he always has been and always will be. This is not like a man seeking to elevate himself. Moving on, and it says there, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe, the skirt of his robe, that has to do with glory. It's known that the longer the skirt of the king was, the more glory was attributed to this king. So you have a great king that has his skirt 10, 15, 20 feet. Wow. So impressive, right? 
incomparable. The king of kings has the skirt of his robe literally filling the temple with his glory. So we see here, nothing, no earthly glory, no earthly king can compare to the king of kings. And so in verses 2 and 3, we start seeing Isaiah's experience and his encounter with the glory of the Lord. And the peak of that we see in his holiness. So my first point, the man who encounters the Lord is struck with his holiness. Verses 2 and 3. It says there, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Seraphim. We see that a couple times in the Bible. What is seraphim? Seraphim literally means the burning ones. They are holy angels continuously burning as they flying around the throne, the presence of God, constantly yelling out, crying out, holy, holy, holy. They were created intentionally, specifically with a design. Just like God creates everything with a specific intention and design, whether man understands it or not, God has created it for a purpose. And so he created them with specifically six wings. They needed six wings. Why? They could not bear to behold the full extent of the holiness of the Lord so instinctively, automatically, without any hesitation or blinking or thinking They cover their face. They cover their face. In humility and their creatureness, they cover their feet. And with the next set, they're flying around. They're flying around the presence of the Lord in anticipation, in readiness to serve their Creator. Flying around, flying around, flying around, and only yelling out, Holy, holy, holy. This is threefold. In Scripture here. In Revelation, we also see the same thing threefold. There's no other attribute of God that's repeated to the third degree. For instance, we don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says that God is love, 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 or God is wrath, 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 or God is mercy, 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 and so on. So the holiness of God, what I want us to get from that is that the holiness of God is a big deal. It's a big deal. Isaiah is immediately hit in the presence of the Lord with his holiness. So we got to step back for a moment and ask ourselves, what does it mean that God is holy? What does it mean that God is holy? That's the question. That's a big question. Because that's what they're yelling out constantly around the presence of God. Most people automatically only assume that Holiness is, has to do with the righteousness and moral purity of God. Now, while there is a connection with this, the reality of what holiness actually means, that doesn't get to the root of the meaning. 
This is something Steve Lawson said. He said, the holiness of God is primarily about the transcendence of God, not the moral purity of God. So holiness has more to do with being set apart, separate, otherness, in a league of your own, distinct, not like the rest. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness has to do with not being like the rest. You can't be compared. Holiness is more than just being without sin. Think about this again. The seraphim were in the presence of God, and they were holy in that sense. They were without sin. They had never sinned. And yet, they could not be compared to this holy, holy, holy God. Let's look at a couple of scriptures that might help us, that will help us with what it means that God is holy. If you jot it down or if you can go there quickly in the Old Testament, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. This is huge here. It says there, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Why? Why is there no one like him? Because there's no one like him. Why is there no one holy like God? Because there's no one like him. There's no one besides him. That's what it has to do with God is holy. The Lord is holy. That's what it has to do with, that there's no one like him. I don't know if you guys sing this song. We sing it at GCC San Antonio. It goes, Come and behold him, the one and the only. Cry out, sing holy. Yes? Think about the lyrics. The one and the only cry out, sing holy. See the connection there? There's a connection, be, there's a connection between no one being like you and being holy. One more scripture, Isaiah 40 says, To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the holy one. See? You cannot compare God to anyone or anything else. Here's something that someone says. What is more comparable what is closer or more comparable to God the seraphim that we see here in Isaiah chapter 6 or the bacteria that's swimming around in the toilet after you use it what is more comparable to God well surely the seraphim I mean they're they're closer to God they're right there incomparable even to them God alone is holy, holy, holy. Let me seek to illustrate this more. I don't know if you all have seen this on YouTube. Um, it's called How Great Is Our God. Raise your hand if you've seen this. By a guy named Louis Giglio. I don't know if you guys have seen it. No, no one? Okay, well, I'm just going to go through in a, in a nutshell and try to tell you. Well, he's talking about astrology in this, in this video. I don't know too much about Louis Giglio, but he does a great job um, talking about the stars. And the planets. And so he compares the distance. He talks about the distance and he talks about the, 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 the size of the stars. Okay? So get this. He says this. He, he's seeking to compare the planet Earth. Because we have some form of understanding of, 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 the, of the massive size of the Earth. Right? The Earth is massive. Just drive through Texas and it's just a little speck. And then Texas is huge. Right? The earth is massive. So then he compares these stars, okay? 
And he says that the earth, he says, if hypothetically the earth was the size of a golf ball, and he starts off by saying, you would need the, the school bus to be filled with, with golf balls, and then you get the size of the star, right? Wow, that's impressive, right? But you keep going. You get towards the end of at least what we've discovered, because, well, that's probably even more out there. But what we've discovered, he says, take the golf ball, the size of an earth, and fill the whole entire state of Texas with golf balls, 22 inches deep. <laughs> you, you get to that and you're like, <laughs> there's nothing to say, right? This God who created these stars. But, but, but think about the point of what, we're make, what I'm making here, okay? The great star, I think that one's called Betelgeuse, you can compare that star to a lesser star, right? He's comparing it to the planet Earth, right? You, we can somehow, some way, try to wrap our minds around that and try to understand the size of this star that can com be compared to a lesser star. But who or what can be compared to this God? No one, nothing. Of course, people try to compare God. The Jehovah Witnesses they try to compare God. They say, because of their wrong understanding of who God is and the Trinity and who Jesus is, but this is what they say. They say, God, the Almighty God is up here, and Jesus is a mighty God. So he's close, he's not there, but he's, he's halfway there or, or mostly there. No, 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 no. No one, nothing can be compared to God. Because God alone is holy, holy, holy. You guys seen interviews with uh, Ray Comfort, right? You guys heard of Ray Comfort? Yes? Okay. He has these interviews and he asks people these questions. And typically people say that they're basically good. Sure, they've made mistakes. They've sinned. They've erred. They've, they've done bad things. But they're not at the root that bad. They aren't like those criminals, those murderers, those rapists, right? But then you have another video, someone else that goes into these prisons, and they talk to the criminals who are murderers and rapists. And you know what they say? They say, well, they're, they're just not as bad as Hitler and these other people. They have good intentions for the most part. Well, people with this type of mentality, they have never truly encountered the holiness of God. God has not been revealed to them in a true saving way. Because the sinless, sinless, perfect, burning seraphim in the presence of the Lord have to cover their face. Yet these sinful men boldly, without apology, openly profess their supposed goodness. This is tragic, sad. But it's because, again, they have never truly encountered the holiness of God. People who truly encounter the God of the Bible understand to some degree, again, we talked earlier that we have limited knowledge and we're ignorant so much, especially when we're first saved. But people who have encountered truly the God of the Bible have some understanding to some small degree of the holiness of God, God's holiness. And seeing the Lord's holiness will affect your life. It will affect 
your thinking. You're not left the same. Your vision, your perspective of your life changes. You no longer see things with the same lens and the same perspective. You no longer see the outside world externally or internally. You no longer see yourself with the, right, with the same perspective. Isaiah, think about Isaiah being a holy prophet, prophet of God. He didn't see himself with the same perspective. If you continue in the text, he saw himself as sinful, which leads to the second point. The man who encounters the Lord recognizes his own sinfulness. He recognizes his own sinfulness. Verses 4 and 5. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, Isaiah, prophet of Israel, prophet of God, pronounces a curse, not like the typical, usual, external curse toward the wicked, ungodly people who will not repent. No, He's pronouncing a curse on himself. Why? we got to step back and ask the question, why? Why is he pronouncing a curse upon himself? Why does he feel so undone, disintegrated? Why does he feel so lost? Why does he feel so unclean? How does he suddenly have such a realization about himself? Well, the answer is found there in verse 5. Look at the last part there in verse 5. It says, For, this is the reason why, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Truly encountering the Lord results in being struck with your sinfulness as a result of truly seeing Him. God's holiness is a problem for mankind. It's a huge problem for mankind. Why? Because we are sinful. And here's, here's a thought. If God's holiness is such a problem because of our sinfulness, then why do we want people to recognize that they're sinful, that they're wretched, that they're lost, that they're completely undone like Isaiah? Why do we want them to recognize this if it's such bad news? It's because there's good news. Because Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is has everything all together, has everything all beautiful and organized and structured. No, he came to seek and save that which is lost. That's precisely, specifically who he came down here to save. If you don't recognize that you are lost, he didn't come for you. You think you're good like the Pharisees, then he's going to leave you because you're good. He came for the lost. We don't come to recognize our lost state. Why would we want to be saved? The Lord does not save anyone who does not come to terms with their condition of being lost and sinful. I'll give you my personal testimony. I was saved on a missionary trip. I was in Argentina, a missionary trip, supposedly as a missionary, right? And I got saved in Argentina in 2006. We would go evangelizing using a, a gospel cube, Evangicube, I think they call it. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Well, the guy, we would go two by twos. The guy that I went with, he labored long and hard in the first slide 
the first part of the cube, and it was man's separation from God. And so he labored long and hard over God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And that convicted me. I saw that I was lost, that I was a man of unclean lips, and I saw my own sinfulness. The Lord used this man in his preaching, faithfully preaching the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man to save me. I saw who God was, and he saved me. So this might be a little controversial, what I'm about to say, but I believe it's biblical, and I'm convicted about this. So this is what I'll say. The most effective way to show people their lost condition, their wretched state, is to show them, to lift up, to explain to them who God is. It's not the Ten Commandments. People want to diligently wrestle and show people through all kinds of different means their lost state through the law. Now, Hear me, the law does have its place. I do believe the law has its place as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. There are many things that we can see from that. The law is an instrument that the Lord uses to reveal sin as it's the reflection of the character and the glory of God. But hear this, even though the law reflects the glory of God, the law is not the essence of the glory of God. The law reflects the light, but the law itself is not the light because Jesus did not come down here and say, you want the light? Look at the Ten Commandments and there you'll find the light. No, he said, I am the light. He pointed to himself. He said, I am the light. So we should labor more diligently, I believe, to display, to unpack, to reveal to man God's light in his holiness to help reveal man's dark sinfulness. Isaiah pronounced a curse upon himself, and he said that he is a man of unclean lips. Think about this. He's talking about his lips. Isaiah, again, he was a holy prophet of God. He used to do a lot of things to honor and glorify God, and primarily using his lips. He was a herald of truth, and he used his lips, his mouth, to communicate that truth. God used him primarily using his mouth to communicate. Yet even the best that Isaiah could muster up, he knew full well, as he would say, that his best works, best works that he can come up with, were as filthy rags before him. Like he says in Isaiah 64. In the face of God's holiness, Isaiah knew full well that it was polluted garment, polluted sinfulness in front of him, unclean lips. Isaiah was disintegrated and completely undone before the holiness of God. So here's a question for each and every one of us. Have you felt any reality of the holiness of God? Have you felt any reality of your own sinfulness? Because again, if you don't have any clue about God's holiness, if that has not struck you or hit you to any degree, and you have not had any uh, weight of your sin fall upon you, then you should not be assured that you have encountered this God of the Bible. Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, Psalm chapter 116 says, When I was brought low, you saved me. 
He was brought low. We need to bring ourselves low in humility before the holiness of God. He provides. He provides specifically salvation to all who come to him broken, repentant, just like the man that we see in Luke chapter 18, the tax collector. Oops, sorry. Humble, broken, beating his chest. Just like that man in Luke 18. You can and will have your sin atoned for. Jesus Christ, as we heard in the children's time, he took on sin upon himself. So, there is hope. Isaiah experienced the forgiveness of God. So we see the third point. The man who encounters the Lord experiences forgiveness. Verses 6, or verses six and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay, let's go back to the order once more. It's essential. We have to note the order here. First, Isaiah is struck with the Lord's holiness. Second, he recognizes his sinfulness. Third, he experiences forgiveness. Why is this so important? Because there are literally multitudes of people all around us who are assured by supposed preachers that they are good with God, that they are saved. Many times, all they hear in their preaching is jokes and fun and game. That's it. That's the extent of the content that they put out. And after much talk about maybe even self-esteem and, and becoming healthier and wealthier, becoming a better person with better morals, much talk of all of that and more, and no mention of God's holiness or man's sinfulness, after all of that, they are assured that they are saved and pronounced saved, that their sins are forgiven. That is deceiving. That is devastating that we have that all across the world. If there's no realization of God's holiness or your sinfulness, then there should be no assurance of forgiveness. You might claim to have encountered God because people do claim to have encountered God, but it's not the God of this Bible. Isaiah felt the burning coals touching his lips. He felt and experienced the forgiveness of God. Like Isaiah, I believe that every true believer feels the reality to one degree or another that their sin has been forgiven, that their sin has been atoned for. The true believer is struck at the wonder of how a holy and just and righteous God can forgive and atone the sins of not just people outside over there, Hitler or whoever else, but, but my sin. How is it that God can forgive my sin? The believer is struck at the wonder of how God can forgive our sin. He recognizes, the believer recognizes that God is under no obligation. He has absolutely no obligation to save anyone. And yet, in his mercy and love and grace, he saved me. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every believer will always experience perfect assurance of salvation at every moment of their life. I'm not saying that. Sometimes believers are hit with doubt, strong doubt, even for good seasons of their life, like, like there's a dark cloud above them. <coughs> Yet, Scripture says something to this. Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, it says there that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Yeah, you may go through seasons of your life, your Christian life, where you feel like you're wrestling with assurance from time to time. However, the Lord loves, He delights to give His people confidence and assurance that they are His. 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. What moves the heart of the believer to see the kind of love that the Father has given to us? What is it? What, what is it that we see in 1 John chapter 3? Later on in that chapter, we see, uh, later on it says, He appeared to take away sin. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of the believer finding their joy in the love of the Father toward the children, toward you. The seraphim said what? Your guilt is taken away. First John 3, he appeared to take away sin. Our sin and our guilt is completely taken away, gone. Well, how is this possible? It's not done in a vacuum. If God is just and holy, he can't just sweep sin under the rug. How does he take sin away? Well, look at the last part of verse 7 in Isaiah chapter 6. Your sin is atoned for. Those who have a saving encounter with the Lord sitting on a throne realizes that God didn't just sweep your sin under the rug. He realizes that God actually, purposely, atoned for your sin. This is what the whole Old Testament points to. Jesus is the propitiation. He paid the price. He was the atoning sacrifice, and he bore the Father's wrath perfectly to the last drop. Perfectly. And he said on the cross, it is finished. The payment of sin paid in full. He who knew no sin for our sake became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin is atoned for in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation, zero condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And Christians live and feed on this reality. And we go back to this over and over and over and over and over again. That's why we take the Lord's Supper over and over again. 1 John 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You hear that? I'm not just saying that. John, it's not just John saying that. God wants you to know who are believers. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. This is his desire for you. 
God wants you who believe in him to know that you have all your sins forgiven. And I believe again that every true Christian experiences an overwhelming sense at one point or another that they have all their sin atoned for. Here's something else that me and Kinsey didn't coordinate. What, did, what, what song did we sing here that, that fits into this? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. We have all of our sin, not partly, all of it atoned for. And renewing your mind in the gospel and the forgiveness of our sin is precisely, exactly what fuels and empowers the believer to live a victorious Christian life. It's not the law and its demands. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, but gives me wings. We need something greater, right? And that's what God gives us in the gospel. We have the victory now. Revelation chapter 12. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And because you have a testimony, you are going to desire to testify. You are going to have a burden to preach, to announce, to communicate this gospel to others. And that's the next thing that we see finally in Isaiah chapter 6. We see the man who encounters the Lord is eager to be a witness. He has a burden for others to encounter the Lord. Verse 8. <clears throat> and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Again, the man who is struck with God's, the man who encounters the Lord is struck with his holiness. Second, he, he recognizes his sinfulness. Third, he receives forgiveness. And fourth, he desires to be a witness. Here's a quote from Spurgeon. He says, Have you no wish or desire for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Many love theology. Many can quote many great things in all kinds of different books. They can love to debate theology, love to talk about theology and eschatology, and they can talk about these great books on theology. They can articulate the ins and outs of Calvinism, super-infralapsarianism, why they believe or hold to credo or pedo baptism. But if they know nothing of a longing and a desire for others to come to know this Christ, then what good is their knowledge? What, what good is it? It's likely that such a person has never even been converted. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says there, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, dot, 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 but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. You can understand theology better than anyone else on the planet. You can articulate it better than the next person. But if you don't have love, it means nothing. And what is the most loving thing that you can do for mankind? I believe we have a body and a spirit. So yes, I do. This is what Jesus did. He, he healed the sick. He cared for those 
people and their bodies, but he also cared for their souls. And so the most loving thing we can do for mankind is not merely give them meals, though it should include that. We should love our neighbors practically as well. But the most loving thing we can do is show their lost state and point them to the way of salvation. The, the people who are on their way to eternal darkness, flames, gnashing of teeth, these people, these are the ones that we need to love and show them compassion and show them and give them the gospel. God, think about this. We love God and we love others because God first loved us. And he demonstrates his love primarily in forgiving us, right? Like we talked about. And so who are we to not in turn love God and love others, right? As a result of his love for us. And think about this. God is using his church to communicate this gospel to the world. We are privileged to be a herald for the king. He hasn't commissioned the angels. They have wings and they're ready. They're anticipating. They're ready for service. But he hasn't commissioned the angels to go and declare this message. 2 Corinthians 5.20 We are ambassadors. This is Christians. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. The Lord asked this question. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Now some may gather and think and conclude I'll go after I receive some more training. I need to go to the master's seminary. I need my theology sharpened. I need more experiences. Well, here's some questions, okay? Have you experienced the holiness of God? Have you, have you seen and recognized your sinfulness? How about forgiveness? Okay, well then, what more training do you need? What more about your theology needs to be sharpened? What more experience do you need? Do you think you need more training than that woman at the well in John chapter 4? I'm not, I'm not knocking um, training and learning. I'm, I'm not. But I'm saying that God is commissioning the church to go and proclaim his gospel. Whether you're saved today, the woman at the well, or you've been saved for a long time. The Lord commissioned Isaiah here. And the Lord is commissioning us, the church, now. And think about, again, think about who is ultimately commissioning us. It's not the pastor, it's not a denomination, it's not anyone else on the church, church board. No, it's the Lord himself. We are being sent to deliver a message. The message is from the King of Kings. Think about it from an earthly perspective. If we were personally commissioned from an earthly king to deliver his message, we wouldn't take it lightly. I don't think anybody here would take that lightly. If the president were to tell you that you, you needed to communicate a message to someone, you wouldn't take it lightly. You would stay up night and day figuring out how to do this effectively, how to do it right. You would never rest until you fulfilled your duty to deliver this message. Yet, we as Christians, we as Christians have a greater message. We have a greater duty. We have a greater message. We have a greater king who is sending us to do it. And not only that, he promises results. 
He said that his word will never come back void, but will accomplish its purpose. This king never suffers defeat, not even once. You can have assurance that your message will not go forth in vain. It will accomplish its purpose. Will you say with Isaiah here, send me, I'll go. This isn't necessarily even saying that you're going to be a missionary out in the foreign field. This is not even necessarily saying that. He may call you to do that. We need to surrender all to him. But whether he calls you out or not, are you willing to leave your comforts, your earthly securities, your possessions to preach this gospel to those who may otherwise never hear? Maybe he wants you to stay put right here in Austin. Here in Austin. People need to hear this message as well because people are still perishing and lost. Are you willing to sacrifice your time, your energy, your resource for the sake of the loss? For those who are headed for, to eternal destruction. Once you're in heaven, you're not going to be able to say, here I am, send me, I'm ready, I'll go. Your time as an ambassador is done. You are, the, the ministry of reconciliation is finished. You will not be able to evangelize once you get to heaven. Have you encountered the Lord seated upon a throne? Once upon a time, story, once upon a time, I encountered Sean Elliott, right? I had such a great time at that moment but that glory faded away, vanished quickly. And I hardly even think about it now. <laughs> now what, 18 years or whatever went by, I hardly even think about it now. But when you compare it to the glory that I encountered from the Lord sitting on the throne, that glory has not faded. And not only that, it's only growing stronger. It's not fading away. It's getting stronger. So my question to you and to everyone here is, have you encountered the Lord sitting on a throne? If you have, if you have, you have been struck with His holiness, recognize your sinfulness, experience forgiveness, and you will have a desire to witness that others might have the same experience. Amen? Father God, Lord, thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your Word. Please help us again to have it placed in our heart, in our, in our head, in our heart, and in our hands, Lord, that we might understand it, receive it, believe it, and apply it, Lord, in our lives. Please help us, Lord. We are in total dependence on you. We're desperate for you to act. We know that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we have hope because it is you who work in us to will and to do, Lord. Please help us now as we think about you. In the time of remembrance of the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us. In the name